This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Hey, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 665, and we welcome David Jacobs for an interview about his pioneering career working toward making housing healthier for all. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, you can continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified Kevin Oshima as the EPA's technical contact for environmental measurement and modeling. The IEQ radio trivia question for today, May 20, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IEQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IEQ radio trivia question. Name the pediatrician who first warned the world about lead. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. David Jacobs is currently the chief scientist at the National Center for Healthy Housing, and he also directs the U.S. Collaborating Center for Healthy Housing Research and Training for the World Health Organization. He's also an adjunct associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health, and he joins us from Chicago today. Welcome to the show, David. Well, thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. I've seen you speak a few times, and I, every time I think I've got to get him on this show, and uh, I finally did it. So it's, I'm glad to have you here, and it's it's really a pleasure. It's been uh, an interesting – I have 40 years. We're not sure if it's 40 years or not yet, but um, you started in kind of the healthy housing and lead-based paint way back at uh, Georgia Tech. Right. So uh, I was uh, trained as an industrial hygienist and I, uh, in the mid eighties, I was working at Georgia Tech. And in that process, I looked at a number of workplaces to uh, measure exposures and engineer uh, control systems to produce a safe uh, working environment for workers. But at one point I was also asked to 
measure uh, worker exposures in uh, housing. <clears throat> and back in those days, uh, lead paint was being burned off or sanded off. So I measured their exposures and these guys were running about 11,000 micrograms per cubic meter. The ocean wow. limit, as you may know, is about 50 micrograms per cubic meter. So they were way overexposed. <clears throat> but not only did we find that the workers were exposed, but the children who moved back into those housing units were also developing elevated blood lead levels because uh, we couldn't get them cleaned up adequately. So those methods are now banned. Um, and as many cases, uh, you know, there's often the case where we see high exposures in workers that also are indicators of broader uh, community health concerns, in this case, children. So I, uh, at Georgia Tech, I, uh, I sort of morphed into the uh, uh, working with a number of public housing authorities and others to develop ways in which we could control lead paint exposures. Uh, Georgia Tech, along with others, ran the uh, Southern Lead-Based Paint Training Consortium for EPA. And it was a, it was a fun course. Uh, we had lots of different instructors from all over the country with a different piece of it. And so um, it was really a melting pot, if you will. We were able to look at <clears throat> uh, which practices and policies uh, were, were the best. Uh, back in those days, there really weren't standard may, ways of doing, you know, lead paint inspections or risk assessments or abatements. It was kind of all over the place. None of it was based on science. So uh, the common thread through my career, I hope, has been that uh, lead poisoning and the broader healthy homes effort is is a case in which science truly did guide the nation's policy. Um, it's increasingly harder these days, as you know, to uh, make sure that our policymakers pay attention to the science. But I think in this case, uh, we were able to, uh, to really do that. So, um, so that's sort of the arc of my career. It started in occupational health and then uh, broader public health. Um, from Georgia Tech, I was uh, I then went to help found the National Center for Lead Safe Housing, which later became the National Center for Healthy Housing in 2000. Um, and then in 95, I went I was asked to go to uh, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, where I ran their uh, their lead poisoning and later healthy homes program in um, uh, from about 95 to what was it? 04, I guess. Um, wow. And, and then I came back to the center where I'm still uh, happily doing uh, research and policy. Uh, last year, I testified before the U.S. Senate on healthy housing, uh, where I basically said, look, you know, in this time of COVID, people get the need for a healthy home more than ever before. We all had to hunker down in our homes to protect ourselves, you know, from the pandemic. But uh, if your home has health hazards in it, uh, you may also have increased exposures to some of those factors. So I think people are getting it now, um, but we still obviously have some ways to go. I agree. And, and your, your current role led to some recent research that actually got my attention and, and reminded me I need to get in touch with you and get you on the show. It was having to do with stoves and uh, cooking and how, how that affects indoor environmental quality. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that? Sure, it's up on the uh, nchh.org website, but um, essentially the STOVE study, which stands for Studying the Optimal Ventilation in the Home Environment, STOVE, you like that acronym? <laughs> uh, but basically, <laughs> we looked at multifamily housing. Uh, all of these uh, units had undergone green rehabilitation in the last uh, five to eight years, 
Um, they all had working gas stoves. Half of them uh, were designed to comply with the ASHRAE ventilation standard, the 62 standard that is, and the other half uh, did not have such ventilation. Uh, and then so we looked at those two groups and tried to determine whether uh, those units that were designed to comply with the ASHRAE standard had reduced uh, exposures to, in this case, we measured five different contaminants. Uh, and as with most research studies, uh, there were some trends, but there was also a mystery. So uh, in, this, in this particular study, we showed dramatic improvements in the group that had the better ventilation. In particulate matter, that was a 20% a improvement, a carbon dioxide improved by 13%, a carbon monoxide improved by 25% and formaldehyde with 44%. I, I should note that the carbon monoxide and formaldehyde um, findings were associated with units that have that had continuous sort of kitchen exhaust going on through the chases in the buildings. <clears throat> uh, so the mystery, let, me, let me clarify real quick, let, David. So, so the mystery here was one of the other contaminants that we measured, nitrogen dioxide, did not, in fact, improve. And so we scratched our head for a long time trying to figure out why that would be. And while we still don't have a complete answer, it appears that uh, it was due to perhaps outdoor air quality. Outdoor air is associated with indoor air quality, after all. And uh, it, there may also be some complex indoor air chemistry going on. So that led, to, we produced a series of recommendations in this report, but one of which is uh, we may not be able to ventilate our way out of the problem with gas stoves. It may be time to think about uh, replacing them with, you know, uh, electric or induction ones so that we don't, ha we'll still have some contaminants, of course, but uh, we won't get the ones from combustion. Um, so I'd encourage everybody to take a look at the study. It's, uh, it took us a number of years to, to get in place. Uh, the low-income residents welcomed us into their home and and I look at the policy recommendations. There are some for, you know, financial institutions, government, uh, uh, societies like ASHRAE and, and others. If I could clarify, did all of the homes have exhaust above the stove and, and that the, then a portion of the homes also had the rest of the home ventilated per ASHRAE 62.2? Well, no. So... Uh, there were two groups of homes. The control group had no ventilation, basically. It was, okay. I think of it as radiators. But the study group sort of had two kinds of ventilation going on. Uh, one was the uh, most of them were ventilated through the bathroom exhaust, and that flow rate was designed to ventilate and comply with ASHRAE for the whole house. Uh, a few of them, uh, this was in Chicago and New York City. The ones in New York City tended to also have continuous kitchen exhaust ventilation. Uh, the ones in Chicago, uh, the study group units, that is, did not have uh, the kind of continuous kitchen exhaust uh, ventilation. So that's why I highlighted the carbon monoxide and formaldehyde levels. Those improvements really only occurred in the group that also had the kitchen ventilation in addition to the bath exhaust. I see. Cliff, you have a follow-up? Yeah, just a quick one. Uh, I was just surprised that um, you said that, um, you know, it was a a lot of these contaminants are combustion related. So it would seem that just changing the stove, you know, for instance, if you had a, a home that did not have an exhaust system, if you converted from gas to electric, that could make a significant difference. Well, right. So that would take care of the combustion byproducts. But 
of course, there are some contaminants like PM 2.5, for example, that are going to be released from when you're cooking with electric. Like if you're frying, you know, hamburgers or something, you're going to get some particulate matter coming off. So you still need to have some ventilation, of course, exhaust ventilation. But um, but but you're right. I mean, in many ways, uh, you would take care of the combustion. And this is part of the ASHRAE standard, I should mention, because uh, they also say source control is is an important part of the puzzle here. It's not just about providing the flow rate, but sources also have to be controlled. And that's kind of what we found. Uh, yes, we found improvements uh, for four of the five contaminants uh, with better ventilation, uh, but one of them didn't improve at all. And so we think that lends itself to a, an emerging effort to sort of, what do we call it, decarbonize housing. And so it links it to kind of the whole climate change effort. Uh, a lot of our energy is used in buildings to you know heat and cool them and cook and and provide heating and so forth. So if we don't uh, figure out how to do that from a climate perspective, uh, we also will, uh, we won't be able to properly link uh, climate change mitigation with, with health concerns. And those two things, I think, go together. David, were, were there any recommendations um, for things that, you know, obviously a lot of tenants don't have control over whether they have better ventilation or whatever. Um, any recommendations like I've seen from, Lawrence Berkeley Labs for how the tenant might better be able to, you know, cook on the back burner or whatever uh, to help with this issue. Well, yeah, we, we didn't actually study the issue of cooking on the back burner. You're, you're right. There's a lot of research going on with these canopy hoods in kitchens uh, to, to try and optimize them. Uh, there are some, a series of recommendations for both owners as well as uh, occupants. You know, the main one being if you have a, exhaust hood, you should use it. If you have windows in your kitchen, you might open them while you're uh, cooking and, and things like that. Um, but obviously the engineering solution is preferred because we don't have to rely on, you know, what people, uh, you know, what, how people's behavior necessarily. And so optimizing that would, would be important. I would mention just putting a bath exhaust fan in, uh, in some houses, you know, the control group houses, they didn't even have that. And you can say, well, yeah, they should just open their, you know, bathroom window. But, you know, some of these units were in Chicago and New York, and people are not going to do that in the wintertime, right? So it's, it's, it's limited. Uh, but there are recommendations for that. Uh, there are also some recommendations for this standard itself. And I should point out for developers, um, one developer told us, you know, look, we asked for, when we were doing this a rehab project, we asked for additional money to put in proper ventilation, and yet we couldn't get the money to do it. So one of the recommendations is that financial institutions that, you know, provide funding for low-income housing rehab, uh, they need to include ventilation, not just make it kind of a, an amenity that may or may not get funded at the end of the day. Um, uh, did, did the rehab include um, mostly weatherization-related rehabilitation? No, so most of these units complied with the enterprise green community criteria. Uh, that's really the only green standard in this country anyway that uh, was designed exclusively for low-income uh, housing. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, there are various requirements such as limiting VOCs, uh, you know, having an optimized uh, design team that can look at uh, things, um, you know, making sure that there's uh, 
not carpets and bathrooms, uh, proper ventilation and the like. Uh, so there's a series of, of green criteria that were used uh, in terms of that. So I, I think the point is that, um, uh, you know, those green standards, uh, in some cases, they are, they are not required. Uh, in Illinois, for example, they, if you're doing low-income housing rehab, they are required by the state. Um, but that's not true across the board. And, and so, um, so the green standards, I think, need to become more part of the architecture in which we do this. I, I, I know that HUD, for example, way back when Superstorm Sandy hit, there was a lot of rebuilding going on in New York, and, uh, and, and HUD basically said, look, if you're using taxpayer dollars, you have to rebuild using a green standard. Now, they didn't say exactly what that meant, and I think there's, there's further work that needs to be done to state what exactly green standards should be. There's been a proliferation of them, frankly, but uh, we know that in many cases, and in this particular study, they, they do produce important benefits. Uh, one of the things we did not look at that in this study, but other studies have looked at, is the difference between so-called non-green rehab and green rehab. And we've shown in other studies that, and, and others have also shown, that green rehab also goes a long way to improving occupant health and reducing exposures to hazardous uh, indoor environmental uh, toxic. Right. We took a big leap from your early days at Georgia Tech to the most recent research coming out of the National Center. I want to kind of go back and fill in some of the gaps. One of the things I noticed on your uh, bio, or maybe it was your CV, I can't remember which, um, said that you were a big part of the HUD lead-based paint guidelines that came out. I, I found those to be so helpful back in the day. I used to help teach some uh, lead-based paint training courses and asbestos training courses. And I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about that document. I'm going to go over and grab my copy of it while you're doing that. Okay. Well, I lost a lot of sleep on that document. Uh, but uh, uh, in 90, 90, I guess it was 93 and 94, uh, we issued a call for data across the nation to try to figure out what those guidelines should be. So that became sort of the Bible, if you will, um, it wasn't just me. Lots of other people worked on that. Uh, but basically, uh, maybe I should back up. So so there were three. Yeah, that's what they looked like. Uh, and, and they were to, huge. I, know thick, I can, but, I can but, see uh, why you lost a lot of sleep. <laughs> well, but I should point out each chapter has like a whatever, a two or three page summary. So, uh, you know, don't find the uh, volume daunting. But but these have later become uh, included in lots of uh, local, state and federal regulations. Uh, they've stood the test of time. They've been, there's a new edition, I think in 2012 that came out. So, uh, but it sort of defined what the, what the rules were. So maybe if I could back up. So there have been three main eras in this country having to do with uh, lead paint uh, in terms of how to respond to poisoned children. Um, and I should point out, you know, as much progress that we've made, we still have half a million children who are poisoned annually, who are, that is, who are above the CDC reference blood lead. But so from 1970 to 1991, we used the medical approach. Uh, Congress passed the Lead-Based Paint Poisoning Prevention Act in 71, and it basically said, look, this is a health problem, so doctors should deal with it. So uh, doctors don't really know housing rehab, and housing rehab folks don't really know how to interpret medical data. So nothing, not a lot really happened between 71 and 91, because people thought, well, if you have lead paint, you should just remove it. And that created policy paralysis. 
So in between those time periods, some scientific research was done to figure out, well, how are the kids actually getting exposed to lead in the paint? It's not like it just jumps off the wall. And so in the mid 80s, a number of studies showed that it was basically three things. That is deteriorated lead-based paint causing paint chip ingestion, uh, contaminated settled house dust and bare contaminated soil that is then transferred from children's hands. If you have kids of your own, you know that at a certain age, everything goes into their mouths. It's normal behavior, of course. Uh, But this that ingestion, that wasn't really well understood. So in 1992, Congress acted on that science, and I testified at a number of those hearings. Um, And they basically revised the definition of lead paint. It wasn't just the presence of lead paint. It was contaminated lead paint, lead-contaminated dust, and lead-contaminated soil. Those were three things that constituted a lead-based paint hazard. Now, it was still expensive to deal with it, but that Title X law, which is really a housing law, but it was a public health law, uh, articulated things that had to be done by HUD, CDC, and EPA to build the architecture that is licensed lead paint risk assessors, abatement contractors, and the like, standard procedures, uh, you know, exposure standards, and, and lots and disclosure. Uh, before that law was passed, it was actually legal for landlords to conceal information they had about lead paint and hazards to new occupants. So that law was really important in the 90s. Uh, well, it almost started to fail because in 95, uh, Congress had authorized a fair amount of money and it wasn't getting spent because the nation just didn't have the capacity to properly remediate homes. So I was brought into HUD in 95 by then HUD Secretary Cisneros. And he basically said, look, you, you, you know, we can't just start losing this money You've got to help us figure out how to get the nation to move on this. So uh, we put a lot of systems in place when I took over the office that we brought scientists into HUD sort of really for the first time, if you will. Um, That office, maybe I should back up. It's an interesting story about how that office was created. Uh, I was asked by a a public housing insurance group. This was a uh, housing authority risk retention group which would basically uh, self-insuring housing authorities against lead paint hazards. But I, uh, I developed a risk assessment protocol for them because back in those days, housing authorities were in the worst of all possible situations. They had been ordered by Congress to inspect all their home, their uh, housing units for lead paint. So they knew where it was, but they didn't have any way to remediate it until the property came up for what's, what was called substantial rehab. Uh, mm-hmm. and that often didn't occur for 20 years. So they didn't have any way to fix it. So they had this liability. And so we said, from an insurance perspective, let's understand the exposure risks and then correct them using you know, interim control, short-term measures that really produce, uh, 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 pre- that help prevent exposure. So that really worked uh, very well. Um, and so we basically uh, used that model by acting you know, both at the long-term and the short-term methods of remediation to protect to protect as many children as possible as quickly as possible, uh, and so that that really worked. Um, we uh, we were asked by Congress to evaluate whether the program was really working. Uh, so we 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 worked with fourteen jurisdictions across the country. I think there were three thousand housing units in that particular study. Um, we it issued. Um, periodic reports to Congress, and it created the evidence that what we were doing was, in fact, really working. I probably had the only housing program at HUD with a biomarker as a measure of success. That is, yeah. points of blood lead levels going down. That study showed 
children in those units, their blood leads went down by, uh, what was it, 37% in uh, over the two years. And uh, dust lead levels went down from 66 to 95%. So the, the program worked. Uh, we were able to build the systems. We put in quality control systems for laboratories, for XRF, that is lead, portable lead paint uh, analyzers. Um, so that we were able to create a level playing field and stimulate private sector efforts to, uh, to remediate. And I should point out that also in those days, we saw the formation of what later became the Lead and Environmental Hazards Association. This is a business uh, group, primarily anyway. It also includes a number of HUD grantees. But uh, th- these are folks who are in the business of doing you know, paint inspections, uh, risk assessments, and abatement. Uh, so that we thought the private sector voice was critically important, as was uh, the voices of parents. Uh, you know, more than a few occasions when I would appear before Congress, uh, you know, I, a guy like me, I can cite lots of statistics. But when the mom gets up and says, I didn't need help getting big, uh, having the health department come out and tell me to wash my child's hands or feed them better. I needed help getting my house fixed. That message really became clear. So anyway, just to go back, so when I was still at Georgia Tech, I was asked to investigate the New Orleans Public Housing Authority. They had hundreds of poisoned kids. Uh, they were failing to uh, remediate the problem properly. Uh, that, that became a white paper that was submitted to Congress. Uh, Barbara Mikulski, who was the former senator from Maryland, looked at that report and basically said, well, why is this happening? Why isn't HUD doing something about it? And she kind of, as you remember, she was a feisty Senator said, I want one-stop shopping. I don't want finger pointing. I don't want public housing saying this is a policy issue and pointing to the policy office at HUD. I want a single office and I want it in the office of the secretary. And so that became the office of uh, lead hazard control at HUD, uh, which I later uh, helped run. So if, you know, unfortunately it took a tragedy like New Orleans in this case to, to, uh, focus the mind. And I guess you could argue that even re- more recently in Flint, uh, it's, we, we had another tragedy in water. And it, it, sometimes it takes each tragedy to focus the nation's attention so that we can make uh, progress. But that's kind of sort of how the office was set up uh, and how the office came to be staffed by scientists as well as other long-term HUD staffers, because uh, it really ended up being HUD who knew how housing programs do or do not work. And until that happened, uh, the financing mechanisms were not really something that CDC or the nation's physicians could could really deal with. It was really up to the housing world, which frankly, until the mid-90s kind of abdicated and said, you know, this is not our problem. We're going to send it to the health department. Um, so I think th- this collaboration really was uh, a, a case in point in which uh, housing and health um, joined together. It's not as though this is a new concept, right? I mean, uh, we did this way back in the turn of the century, uh, that is the 1800s and 1900s, when we had the sanitation movement. And yeah. the reason we have housing laws in this country is for public health reasons, for primarily. We had tuberculosis, cholera, and typhoid, and other communicable diseases. And when we put in indoor plumbing, those diseases were eradicated along with better medicine, of course, but uh, it was a housing change. So fundamentally what healthy housing was about was rebuilding that collaboration among medical environment and uh, uh, housing professionals. And 
after that, you went back to the National Center for Healthy Housing? Well, right. So, uh, well, <laughs> so, uh, well, let me back. So in 99, I was still at HUD. And I remember I testified before Congressman Carl Stokes of Cleveland. And he, he you know, I, I, these are sort of perfunctory hearings. I talked about what we had done with lead paint. He kind of said, well, okay, you've done a great job with lead. But let me tell you, I have, uh, we think, 20 infants in Cleveland who died from mold exposure. What is HUD doing about mold? And I was much younger then, so I gave a rather stupid answer, which was basically, well, Congressman, as you know, HUD has statutory authority to deal with lead, but not mold. And he looks at me and said, this is Appropriations Committee, and here's $10 million. I want you to go figure out what's going on there. And so we did that. Uh, And it was an interesting sort of episode, if you will, because uh, we, we investigated those infants. Uh, There was a physician in uh, Cleveland, Dr. Dora Dearborn, who had done autopsies on these infants who had died, and they had been initially diagnosed with SIDS, you know, sudden infant death syndrome. Mm -hmm. And he he looked at the lung sections and said, you know what, I'm seeing lesions here that are not consistent with SIDS. There's something else going on. And so Terry Allen, who was then the health commissioner of Cuyahoga County in Cleveland, said, well, you know, we should really go look at the houses. And so we did that. And um, And what we found was a defective ventilation system. These systems all use basement air as supply air for the air handler. That part of Cleveland had been flooded. So there was a stachybotrys atria, you know, the so-called black toxic mold growing in the basement. And so the theory was the mold spores had been distributed throughout the home and led to these infant deaths. Now, that was still controversial. You know, some people feel the proof wasn't there. But for us, this deficient ventilation system it had a pretty simple fix. You know, you just use outdoor air, recirculated air, clean up the basements and, and provide a proper ventilation system. Now I have to say this. And so there was, he diagnosed idiopathic pulmonary hemorrhage that is bleeding lungs, but that's still not a reportable disease. So we don't, the nation fully doesn't, doesn't still fully doesn't know how many deaths like that we see, but out of that came the nation's healthy homes effort. That is, Let's apply the lessons we have learned from lead paint in the 90s to other housing-related diseases and illnesses, like asthma, mold-induced illnesses, injury. And so this idea that, so lead sort of, you know, was the initial thing, but we now realize that other housing-related factors uh, are important. So in 99, I wrote, I helped write this report to Congress. And then I basically, you know, as you may remember, um, so George Bush took office in was it 2000, I guess, uh, 2001. And um, the first housing secretary was Mel Martinez. uh, And he was a grandpa. So he kind of really understood the importance of lead on children and made lead a priority. The funding uh, went up. We published a 10-year strategy that would, if it had been fully funded, might have eradicated this disease. Um, But it didn't happen. So anyway, it lasted until about uh, 2006 when it became sort of an a new HUD secretary came in. There's a longer story here that we probably don't have time to go into, but it became an unhappy time for scientists to be in the federal government. Uh, so I, you know, after a lot of back and forth and efforts to remove me, which failed because of a popular outpouring of support from housing and health departments across the country, uh, I had been exiled to Chicago and um, I had uh, I was vindicated of any wrongdoing, of course, but I eventually, my wife at the time said, you know what, you're having 
too much fun out there in Chicago by yourself. You got to come back here to DC. So I did that and uh, rejoined the National Center for what was then Healthy Housing. It changed its name. And that's where I've been ever since doing uh, research and policy work to try and help advance this uh, cause of uh, lead poisoning prevention and healthy homes. All right. We're going to stop and thank our sponsors at halftime here. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with David Jacobs. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the iicrc a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, let's jump right back into it. Um, another lead-related topic is lead in water, David. What um, and recently the infrastructure bill was passed and, and it looks like there's going to be some money for remediation of lead in water. First, how big of an issue is lead in water and in housing? And, and secondly, um, how, how do you think the infrastructure bill was important in this respect and will it be helpful? Right. So th- these are, uh, these are really critically important issues. Uh, it turns out it was a really bad idea to put lead in paint and in lead water pipes. Uh, and there's a wonderful book, uh, several books actually on this question. Um, uh, Mark Woodson Rosner did a history of, you know, how the lead paint uh, pigment and lead industries uh, continued to market their products for in pipes and paints throughout until, you know, the early seventies and eighties. So we have literally millions of homes with uh both lead paint and lead water pipes. Um, I think the numbers from HUD are 23 million with lead paint hazards and somewhere between six and 9 million with uh, lead water pipes. Um, regarding the infrastructure bill, I think one of the, our key issues in this country is a misguided or how to say a narrow definition of what infrastructure means. Uh, there was actually a bill uh, in the house that passed, which basically said housing is infrastructure. Um, 
So what we ended up with, you're right, Joe, there, there's, there's going to be money for lead pipe remediation, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, no money appeared for lead paint remediation. Mm. So it, it struck me as very odd that, you know, we would address the, the water issue and not deal with the paint issue in the infrastructure bill. But that's because people, I think, thought, well, lead water pipes, that's part of our infrastructure, whereas houses, it's privately owned. So therefore, it's on you as the homeowner or the occupant to try to figure out what to do about it. And that's just wrong. You don't need to look any further back than the 2008 uh, financial crisis. That was that began as a housing problem, right? It was a housing finance problem, and it almost sank the whole country. So, so housing is something. Yes, it's private place, obviously, but it's something that we all share. We buy and sell them with each other. We welcome people into their homes and the like. So, I think housing should be seen as part of infrastructure. Um, it makes no sense, frankly to only deal with water and to ignore uh, the lead paint. I'm not, uh, you know, we could talk about ranking, which is more important, but the fact is we should deal with them both. Um, And so uh, there is a group called the National Safe and Healthy Housing Coalition, which my group kind of anchors. I encourage your listeners to take a look at that. Each year we, we send a letter to Congress on infrastructure as well as appropriations bill to help educate them about why it's important to deal with uh, lead and water pipes and broader healthy homes issues. Um, there was a lot of support for it. I'm told by staffers on the Hill that, you know, look, there really wasn't any opposition to um, uh, including lead paint in infrastructure or the even the Build Back Better bill, if you will. Uh, uh, it just got caught up in this sort of larger debate about whether, you know, houses are part of infrastructure. So obviously I think they are. Uh, if The reason we're still talking about lead and healthy homes issues in general is that you, you know, you can pay me now or pay me later. If you, if we don't invest in housing quality, we can shift the cost to the medical sector to treat sick kids or their school system where they don't perform as well. It it really makes no sense. If you think about it to uh, have a child who has an asthma attack because of allergens in their home, maybe they have mold, for example, or pests. We treat them with steroids in the emergency room, control their symptoms, only to release them back into their home environment. And then they end up going back into the hospital. Medical care is really expensive. We're trying to dig our way out of, you know, a health care um, financing issue, as well as an affordable housing crisis. Uh, those two things are linked. And if we're smart about it, we would recognize the connections between the two and not just have a relatively small office at HUD uh, and uh, and at CDC that are looking at the connection between housing and health. Uh, we should optimize them both and reap the savings. There's been lots of cost benefit studies that, that I and others have done. We know that, you know, investing in homes to make them safe and healthy, it just, it, it's not only the right thing to do, it just makes financial sense. Um, so, so I think getting the policies in place and getting the Congress to pay attention to the science is critically important. Um, and just in that vein, I, I never thought I'd have to, you know, I attended the March for Science and when was that? I think 2017. I never thought as a scientist, I'd have to be marching down the streets of Washington, D.C., chanting, what do you want? What do you want? And the response was peer review. Now, I know that's nerdy. <laughs> wow. But, <laughs> but I will say, you know, look, the Enlightenment is only, whatever, four or 500 years old. And the idea that we should rely on science to guide our decisions 
we, we should not give up on that. We need to insist that we need to pay attention to the facts. Otherwise, we just end up going back to, you know, superstition and having kings and queens make decisions for us, uh, which is not the right way to do it, at least in a democratic society, in my view. Sure. So, I know, you know, going back to the National Center, when they kind of broadened their scope from lead to healthy housing in general, um, they had the seven, I think it was, essentials for healthy housing. Now there's eight, and that eighth one has to do with heat and cold, I believe. Um, and I got a text question saying, how did you get involved in non-energy benefits of weatherization? He recalls that you were one of the first groups in the U.S. to address this issue. Well, non-energy benefits, in our case, is a euphemism for health. <laughs> so a lot of the weatherization, well, let me back up. So when I was still at HUD, we had this sort of weird situation where the weatherization program uh, at Department of Energy typically didn't do window replacement because they get the bigger bang for energy bucks through insulation and air sealing and, and things like that. On the other hand, you had the HUD lead program often buying the most inexpensive windows that they can find because um, they wanted to to maximize the number of units that would be made lead safe. So you kind of had these two programs sailing past each other. We know from HUD surveys that windows turn out to have the highest levels of lead paint and dust on them compared to any other building component. So, So, you know, why not? So if you replace windows, especially single pane old windows in, say, pre-40 housing that almost surely have lead paint on them, you get an energy benefit, you get a health benefit in terms of avoided lead poisoning, you get jobs for window installers and window manufacturers, and the value of your home goes up because people will actually pay more for a home that has new windows in them. So what's not to like? But yet getting these two programs to like collaborate became difficult. So we, we tried, we were among the first, but lots of others have looked at, well, what are the health benefits of weatherization? Uh, And so we tried to quantify a number of those. Um, You know, I'm old enough, frankly, and you you may be too, but remember back in the 70s when we had one of our first energy shocks, what did we do? We started sealing up homes, right, to optimize energy efficiency. And as a colleague of mine said, you know, what we ended up doing was growing mushrooms in people's basements because we didn't pay attention to the ventilation. Uh, so what we do now, of course, and the weatherization program has gotten pretty good at this, is we seal up homes, which is a, a good thing to do, but we also pay attention to ventilation. And that's why the study that we started with earlier proved to be so important. Uh, in terms of the principles, there are actually now 10 of them. Uh, uh, oh, really? Okay. Go back and forth. Frankly, when in 99, when we first did the report, we had four of them. We called an expert panel together. They came up with 40 ideas. And so one of the challenges in the healthy homes field is to create focus, but also have the breadth that's required. So uh, I remember when we first came up with the healthy homes idea, a lot of, well, not a lot, but a few of the Congress people who later became supporters basically said, look, I don't want a snappy slogan. I want a program that actually helps people. So what does it mean to be a healthy home? And, and so basically the 10 principles are, you know, making sure you control moisture, properly ventilate, do pest control, uh, do maintenance, uh, do uh, proper cleaning, avoid toxic materials, uh, address injury hazards, uh, make sure that the unit is accessible, uh, especially for people who have, uh, uh, you know, things. And then also, I'm 
cleaning, I think I said. And then the last one is affordability. Uh, we think this is an, a key healthy homes criterion because uh, people, if, if the house is not affordable, then people skip their medical care or don't make the kinds of investments. And yet the housing market doesn't really properly monetize or value a health investment. So that makes, you know, lead abatement or, you know, mold mitigation, unlike any other home improvement. If you're a homeowner, uh, if you make an investment in your home, like you put a new roof on and you put a new furnace in, you get some of that money back when you sell the house because the value of the house has gone up and appraisers know how to value that. But when it comes to a health investment, that hasn't really uh, enabled the housing market to reflect these needed investments. And so it's a market failure. And that's why we're kind of stuck with subsidies and enforcement of housing codes and the like. Now, the appearance of these green standards and and things like it, uh, I think, is a ray of hope so that, you know, it may be that if, if they gain traction, uh, the market will respond appropriately uh, so that we can create health investments in homes across the board. And like I said, you know, I think in a time of COVID, you know, people now realize that, you know, if I'm going to have to spend more time at home, uh, I need to do something to make sure that home environment actually promotes health, not just prevent me from getting sick. It should be an environment that promotes health. Um, so the finances have to conform to it. But those are the key principles of a healthy home. Um, you might be, there might be others. Uh, people debate these back and forth. Like, you know, it's a, maybe lighting is a factor. Uh, what about noise uh, and issues yeah. like that? So, so there are other issues, but I, I think in general, that's the, uh, those are the key principles. And they've, uh, they've kind of withstood the step of time. And I, I should mention that this has become a global effort now. Uh, that was my next question. What, oh. <laughs> tell us a little bit about your current position at the uh, World Health Organization, huh? Well, I'm, okay, so just to be clear, I'm not employed by WHO. I, uh, I, I direct a collaborating center. There are many of them around the world. Um, but basically, uh, I, I was involved in uh, helping WHO to draft uh, its first intersectoral guideline, which was basically housing and health guidelines. Uh, it took us, what was it, eight years, I think, but uh, it involved assembling all the evidence to look at uh, and to make key recommendations for both the housing and the health sectors. Um, th that Those are now being implemented around the globe. I, I will mention that I think they were first released at a WHO conference in Uganda, and the mayor of Kampala showed up and said, you know, we're building houses left and right because our population's expanding but we haven't even begun to think about what aspects of those homes should improve health. And so we need these kind of guidelines. So a lot of countries around the world are beginning the effort to implement them along with the WHO assistance. Um, and so we remain optimistic. There's a lot of interesting research going on in New Zealand and in Australia and in Great Britain is actually one of those countries where they actually reformed the way in which they inspect houses. They have a, what's it called? healthy housing rating system inspectors use uh, to basically rate, you know, and identify deficiencies in housing. And it's based on a health basis. Now their housing code inspectors there are really highly trained. They have master's degrees for the most part. They, they've been well-trained. Uh, our code inspectorate, I think in this country, um, needs to also be properly credentialed and trained. And so that's one of the healthy homes uh, goals that needs to happen. Um, 
along with you know green uh, housing re redevelopment. All right, we're going to go to the roundup right now. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, uh, Cliff, any final questions? Uh, just, 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 just one. Um, what about radon? How big of an issue is radon? Uh, are you doing anything, you know, any research or, or are you involved at all with radon? Uh, yes, and I actually didn't pay him to ask me that question, but we just completed a study uh, in collaboration with the uh, New York State Department of Health. This was a HUD technical study. And we basically asked the question, if we're, if we're doing radon sample, well, let me back up. So radon is a major problem. Uh, it's the second leading cause of lung cancer in this country, next to tobacco smoke, of course. And it's, but it's almost entirely a housing-related problem, right? If you have radon, high levels of radon in your home, then that's the main risk factor. Uh, so our recent study looked at how many housing units in multifamily housing on the ground floor should be sampled. Uh, current federal policy, at least before we did the study, uh, was to sample, well, it was all over the place, frankly. Uh, many programs like FHA and others did 10% of the ground contact units, others did 25%, and a few programs did all the uh, units. And of course, with uh, ARST, was American Association of Radon Technologists, uh, they, their standards require testing all the ground contact units. So, so uh, we assembled a huge database of radon results from across the country, uh, analyzed them statistically, and basically showed the likelihood of missing a unit with, uh, with high radon levels, if not all of them were sampled. And we also tried to quantify what the financial impact would be. So this is a, another case in which uh, a research study was able to drive federal policy, in this case by uh, uh, the federal government is, just, uh, is in the process of implementing a change that would require a sampling of all ground contact units. Um, so so that's, uh, that was uh, an important development. I should also note that we previously looked at a number of housing interventions to determine which ones were had the adequate scientific evidence to be implemented across the board and active rated radon mitigation that is sub-slab depressurization. Uh, we found good evidence that that was one of the interventions that worked. Um, uh, but, but there are other interventions that we also need to, uh, to implement in addition to the radon intervention. So there, the WHO guidelines is one. We also did a systematic review of the evidence in 2000 with, a CDC and the American Public Health Association to try and better understand which of those healthy housing interventions work. Because at the end of the day, we can't just, it's not about just inspecting units to identify hazards. If we don't have the ability to fix them, then uh, it only, you know, only goes so far. So those two things, I think, work together. So the radon uh, study is, is an important one. I think there was, there was a significant amount of nervousness within the weatherization community that, you know, if we reduce indoor ventilation, will we see increased uh, radon levels? 
And what we showed in a randomized controlled trial, I, uh, this is a separate study years earlier, was that if you actually control pressure differentials between the living area and in this case, the basement, you might see increased levels of radon in the basements, but you won't see it in the habitable areas. That's a study we did with uh, Paul Francisco uh, in Illinois, Ohio, and um, uh, Indiana, I believe. <clears throat> David, I, I could talk to you all day. I, I, I got to pick from which question. All right. Um, what healthy housing, indoor environmental quality type topics don't get enough attention right now, in your opinion? Um, well, I think so. The reality is that uh, we one of the struggles, I think, in healthy homes is to avoid this issue of picking which intervention is better than another. If you think about the way that housing rehab is done, it's done as a package. And so these healthy homes efforts are basically packages. Um, you know, for example, if you do uh, moisture mitigation, that has to include the ventilation system if you because they're all kind of connected. So fundamentally, it's about thinking of housing as a system. Um, I, I think uh, the key issues, uh, I think one, as I said earlier, was this uh, constrained view of housing as infrastructure. I don't think that gets enough attention. Um, I think uh, radon is probably another one. Uh, the lead paint stuff is still inadequately funded. Um, there needs to be uh, other issues as well. I think mold mitigation is another uh, key aspect, and but also properly getting the housing market to fully grasp uh, how health benefits can be uh, monetized so that it gets included in the normal course of, of business financing and operations. Um, uh, so I think that's a that's a major uh, thing that doesn't get enough attention for. Um, and I think the other piece here, and maybe it's a bit of my bureaucracy, but we still don't really have a national strategic plan. Mm -hmm. um, we had one for lead in 2000 uh, that would basically said that if we are provided with these resources and spend it in the following ways, we can eliminate the lead problem by 2010. Uh, that was the last time we had such a 10-year strategy. We need a new one. Uh, not just for lead, but for other housing-related diseases and illnesses. Um, if we don't do it, as I said, we'll continue to, uh, to pay exorbitant amounts. Um, so I, I, I think a new strategy is needed at the senior level. That one we did in 2000, that was done by the president's cabinet, and all the cabinet officials and the White House signed on to it. There is a strategy now, but it's frankly just at the staff level at the agencies. And it also needs to be linked up to climate uh, efforts. Um, if we don't make those connections properly, then we'll uh, fail not only in healthy housing issues, but in broader issues as well. I, I guess I'll leave you with this key message. In an odd way, uh, if we think about lead or housing problems, either people think they've already been solved. That is, you know, we took lead out of new paint in 1978. So that was fixed. Uh, or sometimes people say, oh, this is too big to solve, so uh, we're going to ignore it. And so both of those approaches produce paralysis. They don't lead to new policies and, and progress. And so I think what we need to have, that's why these strategic plans are so critical. It's because they, 
They show the path forward. They don't ignore the problem and they don't regard it as being too big to solve. It says, okay, we as citizens, we can get our arms around this. Let's rely on the science. Let's figure out which policies make the most sense and then implement them. Uh, Lead poisoning has improved. The blood lead levels in our nation's children has gone down by over 95% since the 70s. In the 1950s, there were hundreds of kids actually dying of lead poisoning in this country. Most people don't realize that. And yet we're still not out of the woods. There are some companies, notably Sherwin-Williams, that still make lead paint in other countries, if you can believe that. It's still legal there. There's a UN and WHO effort to try and put a stop to that. Um, but, but making sure that uh, not just lead paint, but other housing products, uh, we need to put a system in place to make sure that if we instead of just allowing them into commerce and then figuring out later on that they were a bad idea, that they caused all this, uh, all these health problems and, and homeowners were forced to pay exorbitant amounts to clean up their properties, uh, we should take steps proactively. Let's make sure the products that are put on the market actually make our home a healthy one, uh, not, not one that injures us later on after people like me or epidemiologists figure out that, well, maybe you know, putting in Chinese drywall or vinyl wallpaper or other products didn't really uh, produce the intended health benefit. Um, so, so I think, so in short, uh, I want to leave with a note of optimism here. Uh, if you rely on the facts, it works. Uh, we can make progress and we have made progress, but we're not done yet. We have a long ways to go and, and paying attention, making sure that housing is included in in infrastructure, build back better, and uh, federal appropriations, and and private sector funding, frankly, and philanthropy is critically important. David, can I slide in one more here? I got a great text question, and I think it's kind of future leaning here. Um, indoor heat stress: Will public housing ever set indoor temperature maximums or address overheating problems? Yeah. So, in many ways, I think this is public housing will probably be. Uh, a precursor. I, I don't. Uh, for example, I know that uh, you know no smoking policies were first broadly implemented in the public housing sector. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lead paint remediation started in public housing, uh, and so uh, temperature standards and the like. I, I think there was where was it? There was a recent news article about this where uh, houses were not being properly heated or cooled. Cool, I guess it was in the recent heat wave. So. Um, Again, linked to climate change, isn't it? So I think that uh, hopefully we will see temperature standards. Uh, some housing codes have, you know, temperature requirements, um, but they houses are, are going to have to become increasingly resilient to climate change. Uh, we're going to see heat waves and aberrant housing, and and yet in many cases, houses, uh, the housing codes have not kept up with that, and so we need to make sure that houses will protect us from from uh, the elements pandemics and other sources as well as well as to optimize our health. Um, so I don't know if I, I sort of skirted around that, but I think, I think it's a great idea. And, um, but I, I, let me just close with this. If, uh, public housing authorities, uh, if all we say is you need to do this, then they're going to say, well, wait a minute, if I need to do, I mean, I remember one guy told me many years ago, uh, executive director of a public housing authority said, okay, Dave, um, winter's coming up. I have, money in my budget to do lead paint, or I can put the new furnaces in so that people have heat. Which one would you pick? 
And I kind of said, well, we shouldn't be about having to pick. So if we want these health uh, improvements to occur, whether it's in public housing or other federally assisted housing, it needs to be uh, financed. Um, just putting in health requirements without paying attention to the money uh, will get us nowhere. Uh, we've seen that over and over again. So I, I think if we want temperature standards, for example, in public housing, uh, that has to be properly financed. Um, and that means uh, that it has to be reflected in our nation's budget and also in the ways in which the private housing market uh, functions. And I guess as a follow-up to that, what's the mood like in D.C. right now? Is there any interest in healthy housing and funding some of these programs you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I, I would say there is. Um, uh, as I said, I testified before a Senate uh, subcommittee back in, when was it, July of last year. And there was a lot of interest in this. Um, <clears throat> um, but I, I think getting it, and we should need to identify uh, particular champions. I, I, you know, as you all know, it's, it's basically very partisan. Um, but in my career, I've seen both sides sort of come together around health. I mean, look, nobody's in favor of poisoned children, right? Uh, and, and many congressmen and others have said, taxpayer dollars should not be used to subsidize houses that poison children or harm them. So I think people get that. It's just making sure that this doesn't succumb to the partisan rancor that uh, uh, it, it seems to prevail. Um, th there is precedent for this. I can remember, I mentioned Senator Mikulski, uh, who was a liberal senator from Maryland, but uh, she was joined at the hip with Kit Bond, who is a conservative from Missouri, and mm -hmm. they worked together. That also happened in the House. So I think there's a way in which uh, this issue in particular could be used to rebuild consensus that, you know, together we, we can work together to solve these problems, not just, you know, get a soundbite and, and uh, you know, attack each other. This is something that our nation needs, and I think it can produce the kind of unity that we need to move forward. Um, and I think that's a great note to end on here, David Jacobs. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to uh, hearing more from you and from responding to your uh, listeners' questions. Very good. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, David Jacobs. And uh, I also want to thank my co-host, Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of uh, listeners and our sponsors will be taking a break next week for Memorial Day. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 